Merry Christmas. I'm sure everybody is like sprinting right now. Everybody's feeling a little bit overwhelmed, trying to get ready for Christmas. Nod your head if you are. Okay, we are. All of my family is coming in town, and so we're hosting, so we got a lot of house cleaning to do. It's gonna be, it's gonna be so much fun, though, and so I'm just glad you decided to come today and be a part of uh, some of the different un- unrolling of the, the Mercy Road Christmas experience. Um, we've got one going on, or several services, but one more like separate type uh, service set uh, on Thursday. Really excited about that. And we've been in a series called Light in the Darkness. If I haven't gotten a chance to meet you, my name's Davey. I'm just one of the teaching pastors here. And I, I haven't been at the Carmel location in a while because I've been kind of bouncing around to a lot of different other locations. I don't know if you know this, but there are a lot of other Mercy Road locations in different corners of our city, and they're going so well. It's unbelievable what God is doing. And uh, it's just cool to know that we're a part of something bigger than ourselves, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I'm telling you, listen, life is really miserable when you are the point of it, when it's all about you. And so what's cool about the mission of Mercy Road is not only do we try to help people understand, hey, listen, let's be on mission. Let's make life about other people and, and, and bringing the kingdom into the spaces and spheres of influence around us. But we're also like in the DNA of it, planting other churches, other locations and becoming part of something bigger than just ourselves. And I believe God blesses that when you are not the point but you play a part. And I just feel really blessed to have been able to play a part of the different locations. I was at um, uh, Northwest a few weeks ago and then two weeks ago at, at Northeast and then last week downtown. And it's just, it's been a blast. So just know that right now, other people are worshiping with the same kind of thread of DNA. It's really, really cool. We're, we're in the series Light in the Darkness. And um, Pastor Josh, if you guys enjoyed the first couple of weeks of this, he chose a passage that might seem unconventional at Christmas time, because normally at Christmas time you're thinking, you know, Mary and Joseph and the baby, and but but he he decided to preach out of John one, and I'm going to pick up where he left off, and we're going to be I'm literally going to preach one verse today. How's that sound? That sound good? We can get out of here a little bit earlier. Okay, if you have ever heard me preach before, you know that's not true. All right. <laughs> I promise it goes faster if you talk back and forth to me and if you engage with me. But if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 1 or if you're in your your version Bible or we can, you know, look at the sky Bible up here. John chapter 1, we're going to be in verse 14 and that's it. Verse 14. Before I get there, let me kind of set it up a little bit like this. Uh, This past week, uh, my beautiful wife and I, she's seated right here. So I just want to call your attention to that. So if I say anything embarrassing, you guys can all look at her and she can be wildly embarrassed. We celebrated our anniversary this past week, three years. Yeah, yeah. Um, Our story is a bit unconventional. Um, I was married for seven years and I lost my wife in 2015, tragically in a home invasion. Christy's first marriage ended in a painful divorce. And so Three years ago, we, we blended our family. She had a daughter, I had a son, and um, it's just really cool. Like when you've experienced loss of any kind, of any nature, and you kind of get into, you know, when life is very disappointing, then you get to experience some restoration in that. It's just really, really cool and powerful. And so we spent some time this week reflecting back on that and, and watching a little bit of our, our you know, a video of wedding stuff. And I started having some memories about it and thinking about blending our family and how old our kids have gotten. We now have three kids. Um, Natalia is our oldest. She's seven. She comes from Christy's previous marriage. Weston is six. Comes from my previous marriage. We have one of our own now that we had just over a year ago, Cohen. And um, normal families... Whatever that means, right? <laughs> um, how many of you guys are in like a blended family? Blended families? Okay, yeah, there's a lot of blended families today, okay? Normal families, 
have like birth orders, you know what I mean? You have firstborn, secondborn, thirdborn. They tend to take on personalities based on their birth orders. Maybe you've read the birth order book. You've got like firstborns usually like responsible and stubborn and secondborns like flexible and maybe a little bit rebellious, um, you know, or very pleasing in nature. This one, the thirdborn is either supposed to be extremely obstinate or very, very go with the flow, you know? We have three firstborns. <laughs> okay, so that means we have stubborn, more stubborn, most stubborn, all right? So you know how to pray for us. Um, we are getting all the parenting counseling that we possibly can right now. But I was thinking about when we first blended our family and how this kind of really, you know, weird kind of melding together took place. When we were dating, we were beginning to have conversations with our kids about what they would call us. And um, obviously, Weston's mom is, you know, passed and she's in heaven. And so I wanted Weston to call Christy mommy. Um, but we kind of were given Natalia a little bit of an option because her dad is still very much in the picture. And um, so Natalia wanted to call me daddy, but she was prior to this point calling me Davy. So I remember when we were, maybe it was while we were engaged or we were about to be engaged, they were over for dinner one night and Natalia goes, Davy, Davy. And Weston goes, and if you know Weston, <laughs> it's <laughs> only the way that Weston can. He's like, Talia, his name's not Davy, it's daddy, <laughs> right? Like if we're praying that Weston has perfect eyesight because we definitely do not want him having glasses because it would just be really bad for him in school. Right? And Taya, you know, like anyways. <laughs> so, so he says that and it was just so cute because I was like, wow, like, okay, that's, that's funny. That's true. He sees me as daddy. Natalia sees me as Davy. Both true, but they call me something different. I have a different position in their life at that point. Well, Something changed my position in Natalia's life when we got married and we blended our family. I think I have a picture. Did I ever show, did I already show that picture there? Okay, yep, it was beautiful, right? It's a really cool, special moment. By the way, pause on that for a second just because it's 11 o'clock and we have a little bit more time. When Weston saw Natalia for the first time, he looks at her and goes, Talia, you look like Moana. That is amazing. You look so good. And Natalia's like, ah, you know, anyways, all right. So... So Weston called me daddy, Natalia called me Davy. When Natalia changed what she viewed me as, what she called me because of this wedding, the ceremony. It was like overnight, my position changed. There was an exchange of vows. There was a covenant that was made. There was a ceremony that was done. And then there was this decision that we were gonna graft our lives together and we were gonna become one flesh, one, one household. And in and, and that moment, then, all of a sudden, I went from Davy to Daddy. You got that? A major reality shift right there. Um, I don't think there's anything more important that we could address as we go into the Christmas season than to ask the question, who is Jesus to you? Not just what you call him, but what, what position does he have in your life? Because so many of us, Jesus is kind of just like an accessory, right? We just kind of carry him and access him when we want to. Maybe we're in a desperate situation. Or maybe if you're like a, I don't know, maybe we got a lot of CEO Christians, right? Christmas, Easter only. <laughs> you might happen to be here. Jesus is just kind of like this thing that maybe just kind of, and maybe one day I'll kind of get serious about this whole Jesus thing. But like the question I have, and I think we have to address because Jesus makes us address it, because Jesus calls us to address it, is who is Jesus to you? Is he like this accessory or is he Lord? Is he savior? 
Is he the person that has the keys to your life? Because there's nothing else more important right now. When all of the hustle and bustle of this Christmas season is over, when you're done with all of the shopping, when we've wrapped all the presents, when you've opened all the presents, when you wake up the day after Christmas, and then now we have to look into the long winter of Indiana, we have nothing necessarily to look forward to. And not just that, when the next Christmas comes and goes, and the next and the next, and one day you're going to be sitting there at your last Christmas, and one day after your last Christmas, we never know when that is, you're actually going to to see Jesus face to face and he's going to ask you the question, who am I to you? Who do you say that I am? And you and I will have a life that speaks of who we believe Jesus to be. Now I need you to understand this is so powerful because no matter what you think about Jesus right now, Jesus is the most impactful person in your life. Whether you want to admit that or not, he has influenced your, more, your life more than anybody else has influenced your life. Jesus is the most influential figure that has ever existed, all of history. What's crazy is that he never traveled 100 miles outside of his hometown. He, he never had some kind of major motion picture that he fe was featured in. He wasn't like an actor or anything. He didn't have some kind of huge Instagram account as an influencer. He, he didn't write some kind of best-selling book, and somebody in here is going to be like, well, actually, uh, he wrote the Bible, Davey. No, 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 okay, okay. That's... He didn't do any of the things that we would now deem as the, what the influential people do to spread impact and spread influence. He didn't have some kind of world conquest tour as, as some kind of a militant leader. He didn't do any of that stuff. And yet, listen, he has impacted our life more than anybody else in history. He's been on the front cover of Time Magazine more than anybody else. Hello. We don't even know what Jesus looks like for real, and yet we can all see a picture, and it looks, resembles like what we believe Jesus. We'll go, yeah, that's Jesus. Across the world, everybody can. Why? Because he is the most influential figure who has ever lived and has impacted your life more than you would want to admit it. In fact, the way that we measure time, we are in the year 2020. By the way, next week I'll be here. I'm going to preach a message called hindsight is 2020. Amen. <laughs> right? I'm just kind of, I really encourage you to be here. It's going to be really fun as we unpack that. The year 2020, we're measuring time. We are two, about 2,020 years removed from the birth of Jesus. Jesus's birth, what we celebrate at Christmas time, split time in half. Everything before it is BC, before Christ. Everything after it is AD, Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. His life and his death was so impactful but that, that by the way we measure time, it has been influenced. It's crazy. So I think we've gotta figure out what are we gonna do about Jesus? Because there is something the, the, the way that we answer that question will determine the way we not just walk through Christmas, but how we walk through the rest of our life. And listen, how we walk into eternity. This is huge. I believe John 1.14 gives us a really, really vital clue as to why it's so important that we answer this question. Because John 1.14 it says this, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. If you want to go ahead and take notes on the sermon, here are the three points. Point number one, the word. Number two, became flesh. Number three, dwelt among us. Okay? We can pray and go home, right? That was easy. Thanks, Davey. 
This is so unbelievably packed with power that I feel like we gloss over this. How many of you guys have ever heard this before? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. You ever heard this before? Raise your hand if you ever heard. Okay. Yeah. And yet I think we miss the essence of this because there's something inherent in this text right here that is so unbelievably powerful that if we really understood it, it would massively change the way that we approach everything in life. Let's start with the word. The word is the word logos. That's the Greek for the word. The New Testament was originally written in Koine Greek. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew. The same word translated in Hebrew is dobar. It's written about 390 times in the Hebrew. And every time it's written in the Old Testament, we see it accompanied with power. In fact, the very beginning of time, we see the spirit of God, the Ruach, hovering over chaotic nothingness. This is what was, was happening at the beginning of time. Chaotic nothing. I don't know how chaos can be nothing and nothing can be chaos, but that's just, you know, it's just chaotic nothingness. I wonder, incidentally, how many of us feel like our life this year has been kind of chaotic nothingness. The spirit of, the God, of God, the Ruach, was hovering above the chaotic nothingness, and it spoke, you see in Genesis chapter 1, and God said, which is the word, the dobar, and it began to create things out of nothing. By the way, you've never done that, nor have I. Every time we create, we love, even if you're the most creative person in the world, you've always created out of something. My kids love to do crafts since they're always taking color pencils and construction paper and kind of, you know, all these different little things and they're assembling things together to make something creative. You've never created something out of nothing, but God did. The Debar did. The Word created something out of nothing and it was powerful. And then we see some times and some instances where the Debar, God's word was spoken and people were healed. All throughout the Old Testament, people were healed because of the very word of God. It came out and it had healing power inside of it. It didn't just have healing power, it had resurrection power. And people were, and things were raised back from the dead. In fact, in Ezekiel chapter 37, there's a prophet who would hear from God. His name was Ezekiel, and he spoke on behalf of God. And God told him to go out to this valley of dry bones. And he said, speak the word of God, the dobar, the powerful word of God over these dry bones. Literally a valley full of bones. Looked like there had been some kind of a massive battle that had taken place, and they just buried everybody there. And when he spoke the word of God, the bones began to assemble into skeletons. And they stood there as lifeless skeletons. And God said, speak the dobar, the the word of God again over the skeletons. And he did. And flesh and tendons and sinews began to assemble against these skeletons. And they looked like real human beings, but they had no life in them. And they said, speak the word of God, the Debar, into these skeletons again. And he did. And breath and life came into them. And they went from dry, dead bones, completely scattered, to an assembled army alive and well in front of him. That's the power of the Debar. It's unbelievably power. It has power to heal, has power to resurrect. In fact, there's another instance in 1 Kings chapter 17 where another prophet, Elijah, went to a widow's home and the widow, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, tragically, her little boy dies. And she brings the little boy to the prophet and says, will you do something about this? I know you're a man of God. Could you heal him? Could you raise him from this somehow? And Elijah takes him up to a room, lays down on him and breathes into him the dabar, the breath of God. And the boy resurrects from the dead. He brings the boy back to the woman, and the woman says this, now I know the Debar, the word of God, is true in you. You see, every time the word is mentioned, there's something powerful that rises up with it. It's an unbelievably thing, unbelievable thing. It's not just power, though. The word is something that's precious. It's valuable. In fact, we see all throughout history the value of God's word. 
right about Jesus' time leading up to um, what we celebrate now, the Christmas time, there was uh, these houses of worship that were being established in the Galilee region and in Jerusalem that was, you know, where Jesus, where all the Jewish people would go to worship. And it was called the synagogue. And a synagogue would have a little piece or a part of God's word. No synagogue had the, the whole of God's word. At the time, the Jewish people, they read Genesis through Malachi. Well, why didn't they read Matthew, Mark? Well, because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John hadn't been written yet because that's written about Jesus' life. So up to Jesus' life, this is what they had, Genesis through Malachi, but no one synagogue, think about this, no one church had the entire thing together assembled. So you had one book. Maybe you had the book of Genesis. So you go study the book of Genesis at this one synagogue. Then you go to the other synagogue and you study the book of Exodus. And you have to travel all the way across the land and study the book of Deuteronomy. And, 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 and nobody had one assembled book because if they had one assembled book, the value of that monetarily would be the equivalent of today's value of $750,000. Isn't that crazy? Genesis through Malachi, that's how much value it was. Yet what's amazing to me is that most households have five to seven Bibles that collect dust on a shelf. Why? Well, not to be condescending or to berate anybody or make you feel guilty. I believe genuinely we just don't understand the power of the word, the dabar. These people understood it though because in the Old Testament, God would speak in very isolated situations. He didn't speak all the time, and they barely, rarely had text. So when he would speak, he would speak usually through one man, a prophet, that would then tell everybody. He'd go out and he'd say, hey, this is the word of God, the Dabar. And so they would frantically write it down. They'd go, oh my gosh, wait a minute, because in that day and age, the gods, so it was to believe, did not speak to people clearly. He didn't, they didn't speak. It was all like cryptic and it was all kind of mystified and it was all, maybe they kind of experienced something in a dream and it was, they just couldn't know, they didn't, couldn't make sense of it. There was no real, true, clear direction. But when God would speak, it would be clear with clear direction, with power and authority behind it. And so they go, oh my gosh, God's speaking. Okay, all right. So they would write it down and they put it down on a manuscript and then they wouldn't hear anything. And then the prophet would come out and they would speak and it was isolated. And that happened for centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries leading up to the birth of Christ. Now, incidentally, after Jesus, there was another time period where the people could not access the word of God. The Roman Catholic Church, who had taken power in about the 15th, 14th century, they made sure that the word of God was not translated into common language. The word of God was in Latin and they did this to try to wield their power and manipulate the people and try to oppress them and tell them what God said so that they could co coerce them into certain things. It was a power struggle, a power trip. And then there were a couple men who decided, no, that's not right because everyone needs to experience and hear the word of God, the Debar. The first guy's name was John Wycliffe. He said, it's not right that we don't have this in our own language. And so he began this campaign, sometimes all by himself, where he's like, we've got to get this into it. We've got to get this. And the Roman Catholic Church deemed him a heretic, ostracized him. He ended up dying a natural death. Forty years after his death, they were so angry at him for saying that everybody should have access to the word of God, they exhumed his bones. They dug them all up, burned them with all of his books. All because he wanted the word of God to be accessible to everybody. The next person that followed him was a guy named John Hus. And John Hus had the same kind of campaign. He said, I mean, the word of God needs to be accessible. The word of God needs to be accessible. Unfortunately, he didn't die a natural death. Unfortunately, he also didn't accomplish the word of God being accessible. 
because they took John Houston, they burned him at the stake. While he was burning, he said, Father, forgive my perpetrators. He was willing to die for the word of God to be put in common everyday language. The person that actually accomplished it was William Tyndale, but he didn't accomplish it with no cost. He was also burned at the stake. Why were these men willing to die for the word of God? Because it was valuable. It was precious. Why? Because there was something so fundamental about the word of God that I need us to understand in here today, and I believe we all have to get into in, in, in our souls. And that is the word was truth. In fact, logos, that word in John 14, the word is also a Greek concept that means a pervasive truth that stands the test of time. When you hear it, it's like a universal truth. When you hear it, it resonates. You're like, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I get that. The problem is, is today, truth is very relative. Oh, can I poke for a second? In fact, we have terminologies like, well, that's your truth. It's cool, right? It's your truth, it's all right. No wonder we are all extremely anxious because where is our foundation to build our life around if there's not truth? I mean, not, like, not just that, like, how ridiculous is it that, like, that, that you can just kind of believe what you want to believe? Honestly? Okay, let me do an illustration. Let me ask you a question. Um, what are you sitting in right now? A chair. Are you sure? Because I don't think it's a chair. How do you know it's a chair? Because somebody a long time ago called it a chair? What defines it as a chair? Well, what if I want to call it something else? I mean, it's got four legs and you sit on it. What if I want to call it a horse? That's my truth. I'm sticking with it. You'd be like, maybe, okay, <laughs> sorry, but it's true that it's a chair, right? There's something that we can anchor ourselves around. There's a truth. There's bigger truths too. There are more universal truths that cause our spirit and our soul to resonate. Like for instance, uh, justice. When somebody does something wrong, right? When somebody, let's just say murder. Don't we all kind of go, okay, that's not right. Somebody's got to do something about that, right? There's something in us, regardless of our societal influences, that goes, I don't know. I just don't think that's right. That was kind of the power of God's word back then in the Old Testament. The power of God's word is that God laid out these things that, 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 that were these universal truths that were like, yeah, you know, if we do this, it actually seems like society would be better. Like, if we don't take something that's not ours, right, it kind of seems like it might be a little bit Better, we'd exist a little bit more cooperatively. If we didn't like take somebody else's life, it's not ours to, you know, if like we didn't sleep with someone who's not our spouse, like it kind of seems like it might. Here's the other truth though. If we're talking about truth, the other truth, and this is why we don't like truth, 
is because those universal truths we all realize we fall short. Because how many of us have aced those universal truths, right? Nobody. Like, I don't, I don't have to convince anybody that you're not perfect. And if you think you're perfect, man, Jesus, we're so glad you're here with us today. The rest of us, we're struggling. And that's why we like to suppress truth. Because truth reminds us of our humanity and our fallen nature. Truth reminds us that there is something that has gone inherently wrong with this whole thing. Can we all, I mean, come on. Can we all just realize, like, okay, something's gone wrong. Well, the word defines what that wrong is. That wrong is, is at the beginning of time, Adam and Eve swapped a truth for a lie, and in that moment, the world was fractured because of this thing called sin, and now there's this ever-increasing unraveling of sin. Now, that's why there's crime. That's why there's selfishness. That's why there's famine. That's why there's everything is broken and is falling apart. And here's the crazy thing. We all kind of resonate with this idea of like, okay, something's not right. They're, like, somebody's got to do something about it. And not only that, we resonate with the idea that we can't do anything about it, right? Like, we realize that. I mean, in a couple weeks, I'm going to make some New Year's resolutions. And, and how long are those going to last? Two weeks at best? I, cannot, I can't fix my own life, right? Let alone fix everything else. There's a massive problem. You're like, Davey, this is a really depressing sermon. <laughs> If we don't understand the bad news, there's no way we can understand the good news. The bad news is that this brokenness has affected everything in humanity so much that it separated us from God. And that brokenness is not just out there, it's in here. And we sense it. And yet what's crazy is all of society senses that there's something else there's some other kind of solution. Let me think about this. It is woven into the narrative of a lot of the different pop culture stuff that we have, the movies that we watch, okay? This theme of something, like someone that is one of us, but's also other than us, needs to be sacrificed for us so that we can live. Think about this. You're gonna see it everywhere. How many of you like Harry Potter? Okay? Yes, you can admit you like Harry Potter in church, okay? I mean... <laughs> I love it, right? But when I watched Harry Potter, I didn't read the books. I was a little over that. When I watched it, I was like, oh my gosh. Someone, spoiler alert, someone that's among us, but also other than us, was sacrificed for us so that we could live. Whew. Superman saga. If you're watching the Justice League kind of, you know, trilogy that's kind of going out there. Batman versus Superman. What happens in that movie? Go and watch it today. A bug just flew in my mouth. <laughs> Did you see that? That was crazy. <laughs> Batman versus Superman, right? Someone, someone that is one of us, among us, but also other than us, has to be sacrificed for us so that we could live. It's threaded in the narrative of our culture, and it's something we resonate with because we know we can't fix ourselves. And so it seems like this plight is futile. The word <laughs> looked down on humanity 
and saw that nobody could fix this and said, I will become flesh. That's crazy. So God wraps himself in flesh and comes down to earth. This was unheard of at this day and age. The gods didn't come down to earth. You had to do all of these things to get to the gods or get to nirvana or get to enlightenment or get to some kind. Like it, you had to make some steps. You had to take some different, different things and, and put them in your life. And you had, but, but, but God coming down? No way. And yet he splits time in half in the form of the baby. And his name is Jesus. The word. The debar. And he grew up and he began this public ministry. And when he began to walk around, he began to speak. And out of his mouth came the debar, the word of God. And when he spoke, people go, oh my gosh, he is, he's speaking unlike anybody we've ever seen or heard before. He has authority. Right? Well, the debar in Isaiah says that it goes out and it does not return void. It accomplishes what it's going to accomplish. No mortal man can close the doors that the debar is trying to open. And no mortal man can open doors that the debar closes. It goes out and accomplishes its purposes that were set at the beginning of time. And Jesus spoke with that debar. And they said, wow, he speaks with authority. And then when he spoke, people were healed. And there are times he spoke when he said, Lazarus, come forth. And people were resurrected. The debar became flesh. That blows my mind. Have you ever flown first, first class before? Anybody ever flown first class? Okay, a couple of us. When I went to Israel for the first time, it was right after my, first, my late wife passed away, they were like treating me really well. They were like, man, we're just gonna roll out the red carpet for you. I went with a group, a church group, and they're like, we just wanna do all this stuff for you. So you're gonna fly first class, it's gonna be awesome. And I, I don't know if you know this, but when you're flying first class internationally, it's like next level. Like we got to the airport and you're supposed to go through the, all the check-in normally and you're supposed to check, you know, your baggage and all the, like everything, just, you know, customs when you get there, it's nuts, right? They, we get there and they like redirect us. They go, hey, let's take you. They took us into this like lounge area where there was like a buffet. They said, here, anything you want to eat, anything you want to drink, just take it. We're going to take your baggage, baggages for you. We're going to take your passport for you. We'll go check in for you. We'll check your bags. And when we're done, we'll come get you and escort you to first class. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. So we go and they're escorting us first class. And like we walk by like the rest of the peasants and you know, <laughs> the economy area, right? And I feel so bad. I'm like, <laughs> all right. But I also don't feel bad, okay? Because there's something broken in me, just like in you. And I'm walking up to first class and they're like, hey, here, here's, you know, like some food. You're going to eat dinner. And then if you want to sleep, it's a 14 hour flight. So it's great. Your, your, your seat actually leans back into a bed. Here's a blanket. Here's some socks that you can put on. We'll give them to you. It's just your comfy socks right now. Here's all your toiletries. We're going to give these for you. I'm like, what? They're like all the movies you could, you could ever imagine. And I'm like, wow. Now listen, it ruined me. Because now I can't, like, I'm, like, flying back there after that. And if somebody, if, like, if you were to come to me and go, Davey, I think it'd be a nice gesture to downgrade, go fly in the back, and let somebody else fly in your place in first class, I'd be like, heck no. I got to work on it, okay? I've got some issues, right? No way. Like, that's a, that's a long flight. I don't want to be like drooling on the dude next to me and like, ah, you know, that kind of, like I want to lay down and get some sleep. And what blows my mind is God downgraded so you could upgrade. 
He went from first class, all the amenities of heaven. When you experience heaven, why would you ever want to come back to earth? And he looked on the plight of humankind, and he goes, no, 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 nobody else can get up here, so I'm going to downgrade myself. And he subjected himself to the human experience, all of our frailty, all of our messed upness, all of the things that, I mean, come on, I get out of bed in the morning, I'm getting so old that I pull muscles because my body is going downhill. Everything about me is starting to decompose. And God said, yeah, you know, I have a perfect body. I have a perfect thing. I have perfection and everything. I'm going to downgrade to the human body. And not just the body, the experience. The human experience, the human plight is that we hurt and we grieve and we see and experience disease and we have famine and there's crime and there's hatred and there's hurt and there's betrayal. And Jesus walked that road. Can I, can I have the band come out and... Guys, if we miss this, we miss the essence of everything. That Jesus walked our, our, our plight. This means he understands everything that you go through. Everything. You're experiencing anxiety right now. Jesus experienced anxiety. When did he experience anxiety? Well, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He began to sweat drops of blood before going to the cross. Have you ever experienced anxiety to that degree? No, neither have I. He, he experienced loneliness. He experienced loss. He's experienced everything you have experienced. There's not a situation that you can hold up to him and say, God, you have no idea what this feels like. <laughs> I tried. I put it to the test. After my late wife passed away, I said, God, you, how in the world, Jesus, do you understand what it's like to lose a, a wife? How? Come on, go ahead and tell me that. How? You weren't married. You don't get it. Come on, How? And I'll never forget that moment. I'm sitting on my couch and I have the word open. And I just feel this impression of the Holy Spirit as I'm wrestling. How? How? And he goes, Davey, I had my bride stolen as well. The bride of Christ is the church, you and I. The beginning of time when sin entered into the world and his humanity became under the sin curse, the enemy that comes to steal, kill, and destroy stole his bride. But even before that moment, God had already made a way to get his bride back and reconcile his bride to himself.
when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is why this verse is so unbelievably powerful. Because every single thing we've experienced, he's gone through. Because he is with us in everything. See, one of the most lonely, depressing aspects of being human is that there's nobody else here on earth around you that fully understands you. Nobody gets what you're going through. I mean, absolutely. I want so badly to fully understand my wife. But there are many occasions I have to say, hey, what do you need? And she needs to articulate that to me. But God never has to ask, what do you need? He always knows even before you know. He's so intricately related to you and what you're going through, so personal indwelling in you as a Christian that he not only understands, but he preempts and he solves. That's what's so unbelievable about this. The word became flesh. He subjected himself and dwelt among us. And then he died. He went to the nth degree of suffering so that we could be invited into new life. Resurrection. Because this is what this is what so profound it has me blown away right now in the Christmas season. God is with us. There's going to be relationships that go in and out of my life. There's going to be people that disappoint me. There are going to be situations that leave me feeling like, what in the world? But no matter what, God is with me. And he didn't just dwell among us. But after he died, he raised from the dead and went back to the Father and sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in us. And so now, friends, that debar, the word of God, we'd only, we, not only do we have access to it, but it is in us. And the same power that comes from the word of God, the power to create, the power to heal, the power to resurrect, that power is living in you to do the same for you. That's what's so amazing about all of this. But the only way, the only way that power and the only way that value and the only way that life can be in you is through the sacrifice of Jesus. Nothing by your own accord. It's something that we receive. That's why it's imperative to ask, what does Jesus mean to you? Is he in you? Does he dwell in you? Have you received what he did for you? So he could make his residence in you and he could, he could not just heal you and, and fix everything that's going on and, and rearrange some stuff, but he could also live through you? Man. Would you, just, would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I don't, I don't know where, where this necessarily hits you. I'm not sure where, where you are right now and what you would, what you would say about Jesus. But man, I, I know Jesus said some things about himself. He said, 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father. No one can experience new life without me. And he did such a massive demonstration to tell you how much he wants to bridge that gap and how much he wants to be in relationship with you and how much he wants to solve what's going on right now. He's already made a way for it. He died on the cross for you. He raised from the dead. But you have to choose whether you're going to not just receive that, but live in that reality. Let him take up residence and dwell in you. The invitation's there. So if today you've never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you've never let him come in and dwell in you, I want to invite you to do that right now, right where you are. I want, I want to ask you to just, just pray this. Say it silently. Say it out loud. Say it however you want to, whatever your heart's feeling. Just say, dear Jesus, I need you. I recognize that I'm broken and I'm sinful and there's nothing I can do to fix this. Today, I want to just let go. I surrender to you. I believe you died on the cross for me and you raised from the dead. And today, I open up my life. Would you come in to my life and dwell in me? Would you power wash my soul? Would you make things right? in me. Jesus, I want to follow after you. In your name I pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed, nobody looking around, if you just, if you just prayed that prayer, I'm not going to make a scene of it, but I would just love to know how to pray for you. Would you just, right, right where you are, would you just put your hand in the air right now? Amen. 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 If you're watching online, you can just write it in the chat. Today I prayed to receive Christ. Amen. Jesus, we just ask right now as we as we move into this time of response, Lord, I pray that you would just, um, would you just make this something that's concrete in our, in our hearts? As we move into the Christmas season, would we just recognize the essence and the power of the fact that you're with us no matter what? We love you, Jesus. We thank you for coming to take our place. Amen.